All right. There we go. We have power. We have power. We're on. We're ready to go. You guys ready for this? I'm kind of ready. You know, it's funny. I was just talking with Chris. So, um, <clears throat> we're in this section of, of, of Micah that we read every Christmas, you know? And you'd think that there would be a whole lot of resources for this. There's really not. There's very, very few. It's like, sure, people deal with the Christmas stuff and then, and then just silence, you know? And then I was telling him, when I was going through this and trying to find resources, it's so difficult. It's either just the Christmas story, and then that's pretty much it, and then, uh, or it's like radically dispensational to the point where you have like graphs and charts and all kinds of things, you know. So finding uh, resources on this is, is tough. And when you're going through commentaries, you get to a difficult portion here, and then either they just flat out say we don't know, or just skip right over it. But uh, we'll do our best to to figure out what's going on. Uh, we're not quite up to that point yet. It's the second half of verse five on down. It gets, it's, it gets a little tough. We're only in verse four though. So let's uh, pray and we'll start. <clears throat> so, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do give you all thanks and praise that we could come and gather together as your people, Lord God, to worship you, Father. And we pray, Lord, as we start to look into your word, that you would guide us, you would teach us, um, they would use this to mold us and shape us, make us more like Christ. Help us to understand who it is that you are and what you've done uh, for us and for the, for the whole world, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, that you did send your son to be the savior of the uh, entire world, Lord. And we pray that as we look at this and as we read it, Lord, we're up to the point where uh, it talks about how your son rules in your name, we pray, Lord, that we would have a passion, have a love for your name, that we might see your name hallowed, Father God, here on this earth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So we've been going through that wonderful passage that we do read at Christmas every year. We're taking a little bit more of a deep dive. We keep going on, <clears throat> even after we stop, for uh, where we read at Christmas. So let's go through, read, we'll start at 5.1, read to verse 6, <clears throat> and then do a little bit of review for, there's a number of people who've not been here before, so we'll just discuss the layout of this section again, and then get back into our text here. So it says, Beginning at 5.1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Or troop daughter, or troop-like daughter, or however you want to say that. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too weak to be among the clans of Judah, <clears throat> from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, 
and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. <clears throat> when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its gates, or at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. All right. So who remembers how this oracle is broken down? How did we break this oracle down? Who remembers? Anybody? Yeah, it's broken down chiastically. Very good, Steve. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> looking at it again, uh, we look at verse 1, half of verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Parallels with uh, the second half of verse 6. When he comes into our land and treads within our border. Right? So you have siege laid against them and them treading within the land. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Or with a scepter they strike the judge of Israel on the the cheek. And that parallels with, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its gates or entrances. So Assyria strikes the judge of Israel on the cheek with a scepter and Israel shepherds the land of Assyria with the sword. So that is how we parallel those. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, right? So God raises up a ruler in Israel, a Messiah. And what happens? What is that parallel? Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes. So God raises up a ruler for Israel, and Israel raises up seven shepherds or um, rulers and eight princes of men for Assyria. So God raises up a one singular ruler for Israel, and Israel raises up uh, seven shepherds for its enemy. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Parallels with, and he shall be their peace. Right? God giving them up for a time. It's the opposite of this, but still parallel to it. Uh, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Parallels with, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Yes. So the brothers returning to the land of Israel and them dwelling secure in the land is parallel, making this the heart and center of this oracle here. Uh, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So funneling down, the focus of this oracle is this verse. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Right? Which is good because that's pretty much where we... Uh, 
left off from last week. Last week we spoke about, in verse 3, right? Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers, of his brothers, shall return to the people of Israel. There's a couple other things we could talk about with that uh, section. And maybe we should, before we jump on, move on to uh, verse 4. So looking at it, um, who is in labor? Who remembers when we went through this? Israel. <laughs> yeah, we can start that again if you like. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Now, Anthony and I had a little row, right, Anthony? He's like, the church. The church is in labor giving birth to Christ. I said, well... <laughs> What's that? Not quite that way, but uh, all right, all right. <laughs> all right. But no, yes, uh, it is Israel, specifically the remnant, those who are faithful in Israel, those who were to be carted off to Babylon, right? And how do we know this? Well, when we go back, when we go back in my case, remember, Five comes after four, yes. So we would have just read, or we did just read, looking at, uh, uh, let's see here, in verse 9 of chapter 4. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. Right? For now... You shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. See? So that's what this verse here says. Therefore we shall give them up until the time. Until the time where they shall be, um, well, well, their hope gives birth, right? That's what that whole section was about. They writhe in agony, in, as if in labor, and they need to give birth. And that giving birth, when we spoke about it, we spoke about it in the um, literal sense, and we tied labor to what? Who remembers? How did, how did we tie labor? What did we tie labor to? And it appears everywhere in Scripture. Well, it is a tribulation, yes, but it's a very specific kind of tribulation. Who remembers what we tied labor to? It's tied right to it in Genesis. Right? We went back to Genesis. We read in the garden when God said, go ahead. Mm, no, not judgment. Specifically, it is a judgment, but it's good. It's a specific form of judgment. Well, yeah, we were reading the curse, and the curse on the woman was that God was going to increase her labor and what happened to them right after that occurred? Exile. Very good. Yes. Everywhere in, in Scripture, when we speak of labor pains and we speak of these things, you see they're closely tied to exile. All right? Now, one thing that we really didn't talk about is what well, we did, but we did it in sort of a roundabout kind of way, so we'll do it a little bit more directly, I suppose. Um, when we're dealing with labor, when we're dealing with those things, it's, uh, again, I've never been in labor, so I can't say for sure, but I hear it's very painful, right? It hurts a lot, okay? But women go through it, 
and they go through it gladly. Why? Right, because of the result, right? They're, they go through the pain in hope, right? There's that element of hope, right? So that's, that's what comes out of exile. When they, when, it, when they go into exile, right, there's pain, there's suffering, but there's always, at the end of it, just like labor pains, there's hope, right? They do this in hope. And now, in what we're reading in verses, uh, well, the section we're, we're in right now, I suppose 5, 1 to 6, etc. Um, this is the hope of Israel, the hope of hopes, right? When Israel gives birth, it gives birth in two senses, yes? It gives birth to the Messiah literally, yes? Christ was born in Bethlehem, right? But also um, metaphorically in the sense that he is the consolation of Israel. He is Israel's true and only hope, right? So that's how that works. That's the, the beautiful poetic nature of, of these passages. So remember that when you're reading through and you see things about labor and you see things about this, you'll notice that it is closely tied to exile, right? Starts in Genesis and works its way all the way through uh, the rest of Scripture. The, if you can think about Paul in Romans speaking about the earth being in labor, right? Well, what's the ultimate goal of, well, the plan of God? That, what are they waiting for? What is the earth waiting for? Well, it's waiting for the redemption of the children of men, waiting for the resurrection, waiting for Christ to make all things new, right? Um, right now, the earth itself is in travail. It is in exile, if you will. It's still not united with heaven as it's supposed to be, you know? Um, that's, the, that's what's coming. What's coming, what our great hope is in the resurrection is heaven and earth being united, us being made whole and complete, the earth being made whole and complete with heaven, yes? So uh, that's what we spoke about, and that's more direct, I suppose, because we did speak about that, but we just did that in a more roundabout way. So giving it to you more directly, I suppose. Now, what does it say here? Therefore, we shall give them up until the time. That's that exile period. That's the period when Israel was given up, given uh, over to Babylon. And from the Babylonian captivity, God did redeem them. God brought them back into the land. And yet, and yet, what do we say? He never came back to the temple. The temple was rebuilt. Nebuchadnezzar, remember, destroyed the temple. But the temple that was rebuilt, God never inhabited again, right? You don't have a picture of God like you do when Solomon dedicated the temple and the glory of God came down or in the tabernacle, right? The glory of God filled it. You don't ever have that picture uh, in the, well, what became Herod's temple, right? God was never truly there. He was, remained in exile with his people, right? Because we see in Ezekiel, God left the temple, right? Everybody remembers this, yes? Yes, okay, very good. <laughs> good, uh, yes, God leaves, and he goes off to the land uh, of Susa with uh, his people. And he's there by the, Ezekiel's there by the river Shinar, and he sees God there, right by the river um, in the land of Shinar, the river Shinar, no, sorry, 
the river in the land of Shinar, the river Euphrates. So God never comes back, though, until when? When does God come back to his temple? We spoke about this as well. When does God return to his temple? Like Malachi promises that God will return, right? And then there's a long period of silence where God does not speak. Good. What's that? No, no. That's right. When Jesus walked into the temple, that's when the Lord returns to his temple. That's right. And what does he find there? He finds it filled with thieves and wicked men. And so he cleanses the temple and, you know, he finds it wanting. And eventually he says this whole thing must come down, must be destroyed. Right. So that's when the Lord returns to his temple. However, for our sake, for our purposes, when he says, therefore, he shall give them up until the time. That would be the time of Christ, right? The Lord does return to his temple after the exile, after Nebuchadnezzar destroys it, in the person of Jesus when he comes to his temple. Therefore, uh, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. That would be, well, I suppose, um, Christ did come to the temple before then, didn't he? Right? When uh, he was teaching in the temple, right? He was teaching when he was a child, but he came there when he was a baby. Uh, so that makes sense here. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And we see this, we spoke about this in terms of the missionary journeys of the apostles, right? What was their goal? How did they, how did they go about things? What do they do? Where do they start? Well, we know they started in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And where Paul went when he traveled all the way, you know, from, well, he went all through Asia Minor, then all the way into Spain and all around, he would always go to the synagogues, right? And why did he do that? Why did he go to those places first? Good. Right, that's right, very good. Yeah, because it was going to the Jews first, then to the Greek for this very purpose. God is gathering his people, but not just his people, Israel. Um, the rest of the brothers shall return to the people, Israel. We know, well, as we said uh, before, that the, the Gentiles are included in that number, right? As we went through it last week, we spoke about um, going into the Greco-Roman world, to the synagogue, and proclaiming Christ. But the mystery of the New Testament is that not all Israel is Israel, and that the Gentiles are included. We saw how Amos uh, dealt with the expansion of the tent of David, right? And how James likens this, well, likens this to, or declares that this prophecy is fulfilled in the Gentiles joining the commonwealth of Israel. So that's a review of last week. Now, getting into our text for this week. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The Messiah's rule, or the Messianic rule, is directly linked to the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Right? If we go, well, the closest uh, prophet to Micah was a contemporary of Micah, right? It was a prophet, Isaiah. And 
to shed some light on, on this passage, we could read, I want to read anyways, Isaiah 40. It helps to understand what's, what's happening here, right? Actually, this whole section um, in Micah is closely linked to what happens in Isaiah 40. Things happen in Isaiah 40 that help us to get a better grasp and a better understanding uh, of Micah 5. So, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's really part of the, that section that we want to look at. Um, him standing in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All, f all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass, wi the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go, upon, uh, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those uh, that are with young. And he goes on from there, discussing um, the glory of God. But for our purposes, that's where we can, we can end. This gives us another picture of what happens here. And it explains explicitly uh, <laughs> who the Messiah is. As we spoke about, uh, I guess it would have been a couple weeks ago, the eternal origin of the Messiah, right? The, the well, that, that he is Yahweh, yes? We saw how that works out. But here he says explicitly, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might. So the shepherd here in Isaiah is the same shepherd that we see in Micah. Right? And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And here, behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Um, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. When we speak about the Lord being the shepherd, that obviously brings us right to John chapter 10, right? That Jesus is the great shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. And talks about in that, what does a shepherd do? And how does a shepherd work? Well, we don't have to go into depth on, in terms of what it means to be a shepherd, but we can, we can see how Jesus deals with his sheep. Firstly, he, what, is, what does a shepherd do when the sheep are astray, when they're 
scattered abroad. Only gathers them, right? And that's exactly what we're told happens um, in both Isaiah and in uh, Micah. Uh, then the rest of his people shall return to the people of Israel. It's, how does that work? Well, the shepherd does do the gathering there. But um, what we want to deal with here, this is, the, this is the beginning of where it starts to get difficult. It would have been very difficult for uh, the Jewish audience of Micah. They wouldn't have a clue as to what he meant by, from this point, on through the rest of the oracle. And it's still, as we read it, it's still hard. It's still hard to understand. I mean, theoretically we might get it, conceptually we might understand it, but it's still, it's still quite difficult. For instance, let's just, um, let's read, let's read four down to six and tell me what you guys think about this, okay? And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. All right, if you were a Jew who or was, well, literally had the Assyrian army surrounding you at this point. Remember when Micah was, uh, was prophesying. He was prophesying at the time when Sennacherib was surrounding uh, Jerusalem. What would you have thought about the Messiah? How would you have understood this? How does it sound, just off on its face? Yeah, yeah. A mighty political deliverer, right? That's how it sounds, right on its face, doesn't it? I mean, how could you, else could you interpret it? We see um, they were literally surrounded. Uh, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. That's what's happened to them. Literally, siege was laid against them. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. You know, uh, Sennacherib came with his scepter and was attacking Hezekiah, quite literally, because Hezekiah, again, was in rebellion against, against Sennacherib. Isaiah told Hezekiah, <coughs> excuse me, Hezekiah to pay the toll, right? Pay the tribute to him. Don't stop Paying. But what happened? What did Hezekiah do instead? We spoke about this quite a bit. Huh? Yeah, they went to Egypt and they went to Babylon for help, right? And so God disciplined them. Well, first he destroyed Egypt because he'd said, he promised them that they were never going to go back to, to Egypt. And right there in the, when Egypt, oh, man. Now I have to remember things. Uh, let's see. Oh, yes, right there in Lachish. Uh, if you guys remember way, way, way back in the beginning when we were dealing with the history of this, um, Egypt came up to help. They actually did. They, they were trying to be a good ally and came up 
to support and help uh, Jerusalem, help Hezekiah there. And, and in the Valley of Lachish, Sennacherib's army utterly annihilated the Egyptian army. It was the brother of Pharaoh that, that was leading it, and he was killed along with most of his troops. All right? That's why Sennacherib says, oh, you lean on Egypt, that broken reed that pierces the hand of any man who leans on it. Right? Because they were. They had just broke the army of Egypt. And then, so that left Babylon. Well, what, well, why did God allow that to occur? Well, he promised that they would never, ever go back to the land of Egypt. So God could not exile them there. God exiled them to the land of Babylon. Because, it's like, okay, you want to lean on Babylon? You want to trust in Babylon? You went to them for aid instead of me? Instead of listening to me, you went to Babylon. Therefore, to, if you put your faith in them, to Babylon you shall go. Just like what happened to the northern kingdom when it came to Assyria. Remember, Syria was attacking uh, the northern kingdom. And so, because you have Israel here, Judah down over here. Syria is here. Assyria was over here. Yes? So, you had Syria and the northern kingdom. And Syria was attacking Israel, and so they went to Assyria over here to help them, figuring, you know what, if I could get Assyria to attack Syria on the other side, they would have to withdraw their armies, yes? If I could get them to support us and help us, then that would be a good thing for us, yeah? So that's what they tried to do, and God told them, don't do that, don't go to Assyria, yes? And so they did anyway, just like Judah did with Babylon. And God said to them, okay, you want to trust in Assyria? Well, guess what? Then to Assyria you shall go. And the northern kingdom was exiled by the Assyrian nation. This is the Assyrian Empire at that time. So God did the same thing to Judah, right? We know that in terms of the Babylonian exile. But train of thought just went. <laughs> it's like, where was I going with that? Um, yeah, let me think here. Got to go back. Where, where were we going with that? Okay, yes, that's right. Uh, so God gives a message of hope, though. They were going to go off into exile. They were going to go off, and they were going to um, come back. And when they came back, at that time period, God was going to return, right? The glory of God was going to come, and the Messiah was going to be raised up and all of Israel's enemies would be defeated, right? Even the Jews of, of Christ, they understood that they, they, they were still in exile. Even though they were living back within the land, they were under the oppressive rule of the Roman. Well, first, they were under the rule of the Greeks, right? And then they had a brief period of uh, liberty, right, of independence under the Maccabeans, right? But they were quickly taken right back over by the Greeks and then under the Romans. They were never truly independent. The land was never truly theirs. They had to pay tribute and they had to pay tax to foreign rulers. So the land did not belong to them, right? So they understood that time period as a period of exile as well. And they were waiting for a leader to come and give them the promised freedom, right? I mean, how does it say it? And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. 
for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Remember, when it talks about peace, what it means, we spoke about this a little bit, right? That word shalom. Who remembers what we said about that word? What does it mean? How, what does the word peace mean in this context, or just in uh, the context of the Old Testament in general? When, even to this day, a Jew says shalom, what is he saying? Right, right. That's that is that is absolutely part of part of uh, that. There, when all of these promises are fulfilled, go ahead. Right, right. Yep, yep. It is also a spiritual piece. It's not just a physical piece. It's very good. Yes, that's very true. Um, it does deal with well-being, and, but it deals with the well-being in the sense of wholeness and completeness, right? Um, who did it? I believe it was. If you guys are familiar with the Bible Project, when they went through this, uh, this word, shalom, how they did it. It was a beautiful picture. Um, they dealt with a... They said, picture a wall, right? You have this, this wall with all these cracks and all of these uh, holes in it, and it's not a very good wall. It's not a very stable wall, right? But when we deal with peace, if we say that shalom, that would mean that that wall now, all those cracks are filled, and all those holes are, are covered over, right? Everything, the wall is made whole, complete, and solid, right? That's how they would have dealt with the, or had this understanding of the word shalom. It's not just whitewashed, but made completely whole, right? Utterly restored on every level, right? Remember, the, they had an understanding of this as well, that the, their sin made a separation between them and God, right? They, they knew that, and they knew that the world worked against them. The land itself, the earth, right, was cursed, right? But peace would have restored proper order of things. Right? When, when it says, and he shall be their peace, and deals with them dwelling securely in the land, as it says, with every man under his vine and under his fig tree, with none to make them afraid, it says elsewhere, in, in, or at least in that oracle where it goes on. Part of that, that, that wholeness, that, that peace, is living without fear, because there is nothing to make you afraid, even within the land itself. Everything does what it's supposed to do in the grand order of things, in God's cosmic order. Um, that's really how that word works. So him being their peace is a restoration of all things. All of God's promises are fulfilled, right? They dwell securely in the land. The land flows with milk and honey. It, it, it gives forth its bounty to them. They are blessed by God. God's face shines on them, right? That's what it talks about when it says, and he shall be their peace. So their, the Jews, from the time of the Babylonian captivity all the way through to the time of the Roman Empire, are expecting this Messiah to come and restore all of these things, right? And how, what does it say in the next few verses? 
uh, when the Syrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight sheiks, right? Eight tribal rulers. We spoke about that a bit last week. In our, well, I don't know. Uh, who has, I have the ESV. Who has something else? The NAS, what does it say? In, in terms of um, eight princes of men. How does it say it? Anybody? Nobody? Nobody has a different translation? Okay. All right, leaders of people. All right, well, remember we did speak a little bit about it last time. It says sheik there, like, uh, you know, how the Saudi Arabia has sheiks. Like, it's that, it's that word there, and it's pretty much the only time that word is used. And this is a word that the Assyrians would have used in terms of their, well, it was their tribal leaders that they had gathered to come against Israel. They, they were, the army would have been led by different sheiks. And so it's more of an ironic usage of the word, you know. It's like they bring their sheiks against us, so we'll raise up sheiks against them, right? That's, that's how the word is used there. They didn't have sheiks. They didn't have tribal leaders the same way the, the Assyrians would have. However, it is more of an ironic usage of the word. But regardless of what the meaning remains the same, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its gates, right? So, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The Assyrian here, well, actually, I should say this. When we're looking at 5 and 6, after and he shall be their peace, that is a, um, well, it's considered by many commentators to be a uh, sort of like a war song, right? A song that Israel uh, would have used to drum up some nationalism, I suppose you could say, in a good way, not in a bad way, you know, not in a jingoistic way. But regardless, this is this is a this would have been something they would have used to rally the support of Israel. Right? This is something they would have chanted. And as a matter of fact, it's broken down chiastically as well. Um, this is I don't know why. Oh, I did write it down. Okay, very good. Yeah. This, this, this song is also broken down chiastically, so it's a chiasm within a chiasm. And we'll talk a bit about it next week. About, um, just to, I guess we'll set the stage for next week. We'll, deal, we'll, try, to, we'll try to resolve all of these uh, conflicts that we see here within our understanding, at least from the New Testament perspective, and what's being said here, why it's so difficult. As a matter of fact, when, we go, when I was doing research on this, when I'm trying to do research on this, it's so hard. It is incredibly hard. I can't find good resources for this section of the text. Everything stops at verse 3, pretty much. I mean, 4, yes, they, they deal with 4, but, but not, not too in-depth. They just sort of tie it right in with, with 3, sort of the way I just tied it right in with uh, 5 and 6, not dealing with it. In, in too much depth. But when it comes to verses uh, 5 and 6, one, <laughs> one commentator says, they will raise up uh, against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. We don't know what that means. But this, you know, and then just continues on. You know, it's, 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 quite, it's quite difficult. So, uh, D. 
dealing, and they, and they speak about this in its historical context, which is good, and we should think about this in its historical context, um, dealing with the land of Assyria. Because remember, it was Assyria, it was Sennacherib, who was coming against them at that time. However, this deals with the Messiah, right? And the Assyrian Empire was long, long dead. Uh, they were destroyed by the Babylonians and their, al their allies, um, the Elamites, etc. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. So, how does this work? How does this help us? Like, what is being said here? when it talks about the Assyrians coming into the land and treading in their palaces and them raising up against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men and shepherding the land of Assyria with the sword. I mean, there's a, one of my uh, favorite psalms is a tough one too. It's, I love this psalm, but again, it's also tough. I mean, we read this in Psalm 149. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people and he adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Right? So how do we square this with the New Testament promises? Right? Because... In terms of the Old Testament, did any of this occur? Did Israel ever break free from the Romans in an earthly sense? No, they were utterly destroyed by Titus in 70 AD, right? So how is this fulfilled? How are these promises fulfilled? That's the part that gets really, really tricky and really, really hard. You know what I mean? Because you have the... Um, the extreme all-millennialists, extreme all-millennials, right? the, the, the radical two-kingdom view of things, where when they speak, when they read texts like this, you know, and, and uh, well, like this, like Psalm 149, any, any place where it talks about God executing the vengeance, well, the people of Israel executing vengeance on, on people, uh, on nations, it is spiritualized to the point of having no meaning. Um, but something occurs. Something does occur. God does liberate his people from their enemies in some way, in, in some shape, in some form. So I guess next week we'll have to look at and figure out how. How does the Messiah stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name his God? And how do, does the Messiah's people dwell securely? Because the history of the church is filled with persecution, right? It's filled with all kinds of death for the saints. Them dwelling securely, right? And, well, we can look at this one, too. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So many people believe that the Messiah will lose, right? And, well, win spiritually, but that's about it. But ruling from, from sea to sea, uh, being great to the ends of the earth, how does that work? Especially in our day, right? And then 
where it gets really tricky. How does the Messiah's people raise up shepherds to rule over the enemies of the church or of the Messiah's people? How, does, how do they do that? How do they shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword? Those are some difficult questions. You know, I mean, we could see why the Jews were thinking that they were going to get a political leader. Right? Why the disciples thought that the Messiah was going to return the kingdom to uh, Israel at that time. Right? Why a lot of them got discouraged and disappointed and departed from Christ. Because right? they were anticipating a return of the glory of Israel. Right? They, they thought that uh, he would come, raise an army, and strike down the Romans that Israel would be free once again, that all the promises of God would be given to them in an earthly sense, right, in a, in a geopolitical sense. But God's plan was much larger than that, much bigger. Yes, but how is it fulfilled is the question. So let's uh, pray. Let's give you something to chew on, something to think about for next week, right? Uh, those things are hard, very hard. This passage is incredibly difficult. So you guys could pray for me as I try to find some answers for you. <laughs> so let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the great and precious promises that we have in it, Lord God. We thank you that you do stand um, for us, that, that the Messiah does rule over all men, Lord God and that he is our shepherd, that you've given him to uh, the church, Lord, as its head. We thank you that he tenderly does care for us and guides us and leads us. Father, especially um, now at this time in our land, in our nation, Lord, we pray that we would be uh, ruled with his wisdom, Lord God, that we would follow him wherever he leads into whatever dangers and toils and snares that the world might have for us, Father God. Let us follow him faithfully, Lord, and knowing that he will deal with our enemies as he sees fit, as he sees fit Lord God. We do thank you and give you all praise that we have such a great Savior, Lord. But now as we seek to worship you, Father God, we pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord, that you would... Um, be honored and glorified and magnified, that your name would be hallowed, that you would be exalted in our worship today, Lord, that you would hear our prayers and receive our praise, Father God, that we would come before you uh, humbly with clean hands and pure hearts, Father God, and that we might hear your word um, preached and we might be changed by it, Father, that we might be molded and shaped into the image of your beloved Son. In his name we pray. Amen.